Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Samuel, chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as, as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse said, Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came down upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. This is the word of God. For the past uh, couple months, we've been looking at uh, we've been looking at the entire scope of the Bible, and the Bible has many themes. And we've been looking at the Bible and saying that there are a lot of passages that we studied as children, looked at as children. That now that we look at it again, they're a little bit confusing. And we want to get to the heart and the center of these passages. And that's why we have this series uh, about the Bible. And we're doing a kind of a survey of the, of the whole Bible. And uh, we've gone through several mini-series, really, within this series. Uh, Mini-themes contained within this series. And we said that the, the, the entirety of the Old Testament is really about a search for king. Someone who would redeem this broken world. Because we're longing as a people for justice. We're longing as a people for peace. We're longing as a people for a society with a king that's going to restore all that's broken in the world. A true king, somebody with the heart of God. Saul was supposed to be that king. Saul was supposed to be the king with God's heart. But Saul, he turned out to be like the rest of the kings in the world. And so Samuel who anointed Saul previously, is grieving. He is grieving terribly. But then God comes to Samuel, and he says, there is somebody else, somebody who is after my own heart. He's got kingly character. So today, 
we're going to go into two points, but I guess really there's going to be three points. Uh, it's about kingly character. Why do you need it? How do you get it? How do you apply it? Why do you need it? How do you get it? And then how do you apply it? First, we're going to look at why do you need it? Because in chapter 15, a chapter prior to this, verse 11, here's God. He tells Samuel, I'm going to reject Saul as king. And Samuel, as a result, he's up all night and he's crying. And in verse 1 of this chapter that we just read, verse 1, he's still grieving. And it takes God to wake him up in his grieving, out of his grieving. He says, how long are you going to grieve? God comes to Samuel and he says, be on your way. I'm going to give you somebody else. And he says, I, pro- I, provided my, I provided for myself a king among Jesse's sons. And you get to verses 6 through 7, and that's really the center of this text, really. Uh, Samuel, he, he sees Eliab, the eldest son. He looks at Eliab and he says, surely this is the Lord's anointed. This is the king. And God responds. What does he say? He says, Samuel, basically what he's saying is, Samuel, your eyes are bad. Your eyes are misdirected. You know what misdirection is? We talked a little bit about this last week. Magicians, they master the art of misdirection, getting you to pay attention to something that's really unimportant, but it looks important. Getting you to focus on something that is unimportant, and because you're focusing on this, because you're dwelling on this, your hand, the magician's other hand, is doing something else really covertly underneath all that. And it forces you to be blind. That's how he fools you. That's how he gets you. Because you don't see reality. You don't see the truth beneath the truth. You don't see reality beneath the appearance. What's really important beyond what is insignificant or irrelevant. And God is saying to Samuel here, you and the entire human race, you're obsessed with things that are not real. You're obsessed with things that are unimportant. Just because it's visible, just because it's material, it doesn't make it real. Now, Eliab comes by. This is the eldest son. Samuel sees his height. Samuel looks on his countenance, and he says, this is the one. Eliab is tall. The author represents, he says, Eliab is tall. Saul was tall. Saul was a giant in front of his people. When Samuel anointed Saul, Samuel says to Saul, the Lord has anointed you. He almost uses the same language. He sees Eliab now, he almost says the same thing. And even though he's grieving because of Saul, even though he's grieving because of the disappointment in Saul, when he sees Eliab, he's virtually making the same mistake. He looks, at, he looks at Eliab's height, and he says, this one has potential. This one, surely God has called this one. He's really making the same mistake. He's misdirected. He's intoxicated by Eliab. His appearance, his height, his potential to be tall in those days is to be attractive then, really, and now. <clears throat> to be tall back then is to be kingly, kingly. To be tall back then is to be impressive. It represents the potential of this human being. And he's got power. This man has strength. This man looks kingly, looks regal. So when Samuel, when he sees this, uh, the son of Jesse, he's referring to his potential. He's referring to his talents, his gifts, his strength, his power, his skills. And God says, Samuel, that is the trap because the Lord looks on the heart. Character is reality. The appearance of a person is the misdirection. The appearance of the person is the intoxication. What's it mean to be intoxicated? 
That means that something has grabbed a hold of you to impair your judgment, to impair your eyes. Your view of reality is impaired. And so your judgment, what you see, what you feel, your senses have impaired your judgment. In other words, what he's saying here is that your physical appearance, smoothness, the intelligence of a person, the talent, the accomplishments, the success of a person, the wealth of a person, the potential of a person. God is saying that all these things, when looking on a person, are irrelevant and unimportant. It's not reality. Character is always going to be greater than externals. Man looks on the appearance, but God, not God. Physical appearance is not really who we are. That's really what's, saying, what's going on here. We live in a society. Our culture is bombarded with images, constantly bombarded with images, more than any other time in history. We're bombarded with images, and we are led to believe that physical appearance is the reality, that physical appearance defines who we are, and so to a degree, no matter who you are, you can't help as a result. As a society, as a culture, we cannot help but make comparisons with other people. And that here, the text here is saying that that's corrosive to our souls. It's ruining us. I'm going to give you some examples. One, the pornography industry, the makeup industry, the fashion industry. These are all industries. Most industries capitalize on this, on the fact that the soul, our souls are obsessed with a person's shape, with a person's attractiveness, the quality of their skin, against their character, against their character. And it's killing our women, and it's destroying their self-image. I'm going to give you another example. Everyone in our culture practically does dating exactly the way Jesse looks at Eliab. Jesse knew that one of his sons was going to be king, and so first what he does is he brings the most attractive. You've got to bring the one with the most potential forward first. And so what he does is he one by one he brings uh, the most impressive physically, the most attractive, the most gifted son forward first, and then the second one, then the third one. So you've got Abinadab, then Shammah after Eliab, right? David is completely overlooked, but David is the king. And so we're obsessed as a culture with Eliab's. Because sports tells you so. Because pop culture tells you so. Because this tabloid generation tells us so. Because music, what we listen to, what we see on television, what we watch in our movies, what we read in our books, in our literature, and as a result, we're eliminating. We're systematically eliminating the Davids of the world when we should be pursuing the Davids of the world. Do you see that? We're never impressed by a person's character. We never look into with depth a person's character. Because we're obsessed. We assume that because a person looks regal, he must be regal. And so we pursue a lives when we should be overlooking a lives. And we overlook David's when we should be pursuing David's. Uh, we do da- dating this way. You meet a guy. We're always first impressed by their intelligence. What does he do? Where did he go to school? What kind of family is he from? If we even go that far. That's what we look at first. We're obsessed with that. We dwell on that. In fact, that is pretty much the gateway. Without that, you don't enter through the gate in a lot of cases. That's what we look at. We're never impressed by a person's character. We just hope that they have good character if they have the entry gate qualities. And the text says we are looking for a king. And if you look for a king that way, 
there are chances that you've just eliminated the true king because your eyes have been misdirected. That's what this text is saying. Look at all the miseries of the city. Think about every, every one of us lives in a certain part, somewhere near or in the city. And so if you look at the miseries of the city, uh, and you don't have to be in the city, especially in our city these days, just go to Bucks County. You can go way out of the city and you'll see the miseries. Look at the miseries of the city. Look at all the broken relationships, all the brokenness in the city. What's the source? Do you think the source is a lack of talent? Is the source a lack of creativity because this city lacks creativity? With all the talent pool it boasts, it's always in the top two of the largest number of institutions, secondary institutions in the country. Do you think it's because it's a lack of intelligence, a lack of beauty? No. No, it's love, character, trust. It's the pride. It's the anger. It's the selfishness. I'm going to ask you a question. Do you have the guts to go to somebody who knows you very well and say to them, I will give you a warrant to audit my character? Am I an anxious person or am I a person of peace? Am I an angry person or am I content? Am I a vain person or am I modest? Am I self-absorbed? Or am I a loving person? Am I a wiser person? Or do you see me as a foolish person? Do you have the guts to ask somebody that? Somebody who knows you well. Not somebody who knows you by appearance. Do you have the guts to do that? Now, if you say, I'd rather not. Or if you come up with excuses. I'm afraid. Not now. You don't yet see how God sees. Because it's possible to misunderstand that when God, it, it's possible to misunderstand that uh, what God is saying here is that character is not just above all these things. It's the only thing that matters. Do you get that? Now, it's easy to look at this text and think that when God says, I don't want these sons of Jesse as king. I don't want Eliab, I don't want Abinadab, I don't want Shammah as king because the Lord looks at the heart. It's possible to think that, ah, David must have had a good heart and and his brothers must have had a bad heart. That must be why God's saying that. That's the way I read this growing up. But if you read the rest of this book, and this book is in two parts, if you read 1 Samuel and the rest of 2 Samuel, you're going to wonder, how then does David do all the things, all the bad things, the evil things that he's done? Because at the end, if you really measure it up, put everything side by side, David's record is not much better than Saul's. David does terrible, unspeakable things. And so he's not king. God doesn't bring David in. God doesn't call David. God doesn't anoint David because he's got a better heart or because he's a better person. Then why? Then why? If you see in this passage, it says, Samuel took the horn of oil He anointed David in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed in on David. And from that day on, the Spirit of God rushed on David. What does he say? The Spirit partnered with David. The Spirit negotiated with David. David just needed a little bit of self-improvement, a little bit of self-help, a little bit of a boost. David needed just a little bit of advice. I can keep going with this. David was just a decent guy and he, and, he, and he just needed a little bit of supplement. That's not what the text says here, right? It says the Spirit of God came in. The Holy Spirit, God flooded from that point on 
every moment of David's life for the rest of his life. In other words, you cannot become kingly on your own. You need God every second of your life. I need thee every hour. Moment by moment, I'm lost in his love. You need God every moment, every decision, every temptation, every circumstance, every suffering. The book of Proverbs, a lot of us, we look at the book of Proverbs and it's a mystery to us. It's kind of a, a misnomer to us because it's a book of wisdom, right? But we can't make any sense of it. The book of Proverbs is a book, it was dedicated to young boys in Israel growing up. And it was a way of teaching young boys in the ways of God, in the ways of wisdom. And if you read the first several chapters of the book of Proverbs, nowhere in the book of Proverbs does it say, my son, I need you to take great leaps of faith, great leaps of maturity. It doesn't say that. The book of Proverbs says, my son, walk in my ways. Hear my instruction and walk. Because life is like that. Life is us needing the Lord flooding our lives every step of our journey, every step of our walk. Why? Because it's natural. The natural way of the human heart is not kingly character. <laughs> the natural way of the human heart, if you're honest with yourself, the natural way of your heart is not kingly. You want justice? The Bible says the natural way that the heart wants itself to further itself, it will do injustice to further itself unless God floods your heart every moment. So if you ignore this aspect of your teaching, your heart is in great danger because if you believe that your heart is naturally good, you're never going to change. Some of us right here are struggling every week with change and you're going through this cycle of despair, then counsel, then hope, maybe repentance, and then you go into this uh, sense of confidence and trying and then failing and then despair. And you, it's just an endless cycle. And it's because we're ignoring this aspect of teaching. That if you, because if you believe that your heart is naturally good and all you need is God to supplement your life with good wisdom and good teaching and, and good examples, you're never going to change. You're never going to change. We need kingly character. And only the Lord in our lives, every step of the way, in our journey, in our walk, shapes us. Only God's presence in our lives shapes us every day, every moment. I need thee every hour, moment by moment. So that's why we need it. How do you get it? How do you get kingly character? Jesse has eight sons, and he parades seven of those sons in front of Samuel. Seven is the number for completeness. And you know, Samuel doesn't know Jesse from Adam. So when all these sons go by, Samuel figures seven sons. He looks at seven. He says, surely, he's thinking, this is it. It's got to be one of them, the number seven, because seven is the number for completeness. But God didn't choose any of them. So he turns to Jesse, and he says, Jesse, be straight with me. Is this it? And, and here's what it says. Verse 11, Jesse says, well, no, there's the youngest. There's the youngest son. The Hebrew word there, when he talks about when he refers to David as the youngest, he literally, the Hebrew word connotes taking the idea of David's youth, him being the youngest son, with, he combines it with the idea of irrelevance and insignificance. And so, 
I'm going to kind of paraphrase it and show you what, what Jesse's really saying. Samuel goes to Jesse and says, is this it? Seven sons have gone by. Is this all you've got? And Samuel says, oh, well, no, there's him. There's him. Samuel says, is this it? It can't be it. And Jesse says, I mean, there is him. I didn't even ask him to come because, trust me, he's not kingly. He's a nobody. He's insignificant, irrelevant, irrelevant in our family. I don't even know what his gifts are. I couldn't tell you what they are. He's out with the sheep, my sheep. Samuel says, I need to see him. I need to see this one. And so they bring David in. David comes in, and God says, this is the one. In ancient times, uh, ancient times, ancient cultures were governed by the law of primogeniture, and that means that the world always gave the eldest son all the power, all the wealth, and because the, the eldest son had all the power and all the wealth, he got all the doting, and he got all the approval and all the celebration. The eldest son was always celebrated in these ancient cultures. But every place in the Bible where God is working, he works in a way that reverses the world's values. So whereas the world always prized and celebrated the eldest son, God always celebrates the younger son. And that's the reason why God chooses Abel and not Cain. He chooses Jacob and not Esau. He chooses Joseph and not Reuben. He chooses Moses and not Aaron. And Aaron was a talented one. God always works through the forgotten person. He always works through the overlooked person. Now, think about this. Robert Alter, he's actually a liberal theologian, a liberal a Bible commentator. Uh, he taught at Brandeis, uh, is now a professor at Berkeley University. Uh, but he's a famous Hebrew uh, literal scholar. And so uh, this is what he says, if you, if you read what he says about this passage here. If David was never forgotten, and if he was never looking after Jesse's sheep, killing bears, killing lions, killing things that are larger than him, David would have never learned the skills that he needed to eventually defeat Goliath. The fact is that being overlooked provided a kind of incubation period for David where David instinctively learned what it means to be faithful, what it means to be sacrificial, what it means to be a shepherd, what it means to commit to something and stick with it, even if they're not yours, what it means to lay your life down, what it means to have courage, real courage, what it means to fight things larger, the skills, the talents. When Samuel looks at Eliab the first time, he says, surely this is him. What he actually says is, surely this is the anointed one. The Hebrew word for that is Messiah. Messiah, where we get the word Messiah. In the Greek Old Testament, the word is actually translated to, to say the word Christos, Surely this is the Christos, is where we get the word Christ. In other words, Samuel's saying, is this the Christ? Surely this must be the Christ. David was born in Bethlehem. Everyone's looking for a king. They're overlooking him. So David was not in. Everyone else is misdirected. David is left with the sheep and the animals. But there was another child born in Bethlehem. When everybody was looking for a king, 
he was also not allowed in. There was no room for him in the inn. And so he was left with the sheep and the animals in a manger. And he was starving, tempted by Satan. As soon as he was anointed by God's Spirit, he was sent into the wilderness. There was trouble and danger, the starving, the temptations, all the way up until the cross. And on the cross, on the cross, he wasn't just forgotten. David was overlooked by his father. David was forgotten by his father. David was left out by his father. But Jesus Christ, he wasn't just forgotten by his father. He was forsaken by his father. He was rejected by his father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David was just overlooked by his father. Jesus Christ came down to the earth, unrecognized. You read it in your call to worship. There was nothing about him that seemed attractive to others. Unrecognized, lost all attractiveness. Isaiah 53, he says that he had no attractiveness by which we should desire him. Why? So that we who are truly rejected, spiritually deformed, spiritually ugly, unattractive, unacceptable, could be made worthy, could be made beautiful in the eyes of God, declared acceptable in the eyes of God. If you feel on the outside, if you feel uh, that you are overlooked, if you feel ugly on the outside, uh, you have to understand and you have to look at this text. Let this passage speak into you because the ultimate narrative of rejection was perfected by Christ. It was through that lack of recognition it was through being overlooked. It was through being rejected and unrecognized that salvation came into the world. Do you see that? The high king paid the eternal debt of justice and he was rejected, cosmically thrown out, cast out by the land, from the land of the living. The gospel teaches that God works through the forgotten, God works through the rejected, God works through the overlooked to bring about ultimate salvation. And if you did that through Jesus, surely, surely he is making you, bringing beauty through you. He can do that. That means that he can work through you. You don't have to be afraid of the real you. That's one thing you understand. You don't have to be afraid of the real you because Jesus took on the real you. And he's given you the real him, his righteousness. So when you say, I base my life not on my merit, but on Jesus' merit, the Holy Spirit rushes in. That's God flooding your life. Every day, every moment. Do you see that? There is the beauty. There is the power. There is the, the vindication. You want justice? You want vindication? There is the justice. Justice on the cross. Your sins nailed to the cross. You bear it no more. And then there you have the beauty and the power and the kingliness that you need. Imputed. That's the, that's the actual word. Imputed. Transfer to you. True beauty became ugly for you. True power became vulnerable, became a baby, and died for you. True kingliness, true justice became a criminal for you. He suffered the wrath of God because he wanted you. There is your validation. There is the approval that you need. There is the, the beauty. Look at the beauty of Christ. 
Look at the love of Christ. Look at the grace and compassion of God. Look at the justice of God. Look at the justice, kingliness of God. Look at the beauty, kingliness, and majesty of God. Look at the sovereign grace and love of God on you, for you. That's what's going to change you. To the degree that you believe this, to the degree that you trust this, to the degree that, that you take this in, it will shape your life. It will change your life. It will fill your heart with joy. It will fill your heart with humility. It will fill your heart with confidence. It will fill your heart with the power to melt away your obsessions with appearance because now you know you deserve to be overlooked. And yet God has favor on you because he has rejected his own son the holy king of kings, the beauty and the majesty for you. Do you see that? That will change your eyes. That will redirect your eyes. How do you apply this? Very quickly, how do you apply this? Number one, you can't be obsessed with externals. If you walk away with anything, I assume you're going to walk away with that. You can't be obsessed with externals because people are obsessed by, by externals. Overlook David. People who are obsessed with externals, they overlook the king. They overlook Jesus for that matter. Desire to be a person of character. That's what you should pursue. If we spent the same amount of time on our character as we did on our outer appearance, if you invested as much time or more in your integrity, in your honesty, in your purity as you do on your education, if you valued and treasured and delighted in your relationship with the Father as you do with your house, your lawn, and your 401k portfolio, you would all reach your greater potential, greater options, greater freedom, greater joy. But you know why we don't? You know why we don't do that? It's because our sin drives our fear. Fear of disapproval, fear of failure, fear of just loss of status, loss of security. That's us. These are the core motivations of our heart that drive us. These are our idols, what the Bible calls idols. They drive us. They drive our decisions. They drive our long-term decisions. What we're attracted to, it's blinding. It's misdirecting. It's intoxicating. Desire honor, the honor of God through character. We desire that, but we don't have that. It's never going to happen by you just saying, today I choose to be a person of character. You know, I'm just going to try my best. I'm going to work really hard from now on. That's what New Year's resolutions are all about, right? That's what we do. You can't do that by just making resolutions. The only thing that's going to shape the motivation of your heart, something has to happen. You've got to experience the love of the king. You've got to see what's going on on the cross for you. You've got to take that in for you. St. Augustine, uh, listen, God doesn't say, listen, you better shape up. Look what I did for you. You better shape up, all of you. Don't you get it? I'm going to give you a second chance. That's not a loving king. God is a loving king. Augustine prayed, God, grant me the strength to do what you desire, to do what you will. Take in the gospel. The Holy Spirit, just let it, it's going to rush in. Your life will be in union with Christ. You cannot run then from the righteousness of Christ in your life. And when you gaze on the beauty of Christ and look at the love of Christ demonstrated for you on the cross for you, let it shape you. Jesus Christ, that's the gospel. Jesus Christ, the most beautiful person 
already accomplished all this and died for you. There is the validation and the approval and the honor that you need. Pursue Christ. Pursue his character. Number two, stop trying to pursue Eliab's in your life. And stop trying to present yourself as an Eliab. That's what generates genuine character and genuine humility and genuine community. Because once you stop pursuing the exterior, and once you stop presenting yourself as an Eliab, what are you then attracting people to? What are you then calling people to and highlighting about yourself? What are you then attracted to? You have to make that a discipline in your life. The discipline of presenting yourself as someone who is not Eliab and the discipline of pursuing things that are not Eliab's or that's not going to make you an Eliab in your life. Look for real character rather than being able to say, you know what, all of this is a sham. C.S. Lewis said this world is a shadow land. I'm not going to pursue that. I want to see reality. I have clear eyes. It's a discipline, okay? Something happens, an event has happened in our lives, the cross, and that event now progressively works in our hearts. Let it discipline your eyes. Lastly, when God enters into your life, that means when you become a Christian, uh, there's going to be suffering. Because from this point on, you're going to see this next week, but from this point on, uh, after the Holy Spirit rushes into David's life, his life is characterized by suffering. He's just going to suffer. But there's always redemption through the brokenness and the suffering. Saul, he came right into power. And because he came right into power, he was seduced by the power. But David, he had to learn from a very young age to depend on God, to trust. And how did he do that? It was through suffering. It was through the lions and the bears of his life. It was through the giants in his life. It was through the caves in his life. The wars that were battled, that were waged in his life. The minute the Holy Spirit comes into his life in this passage from here on in, it's one trouble after another. It's one suffering after another. Chapter 17, you have Goliath. Chapter 18, the king, Saul, is seeking to kill David. There's a civil war. He's hiding in caves. He's separated from his home. Every time you see God's presence in someone's life, Every time you see Holy Spirit working in people, there's persecution, there's imprisonment, there's wilderness, there's darkness sometimes. There are caves all the way to Jesus Christ, baptized with the Holy Spirit, perfect through uh, obedience, and yet immediately sent into the wilderness and tempted and tormented by Satan. David became like Jesus, mature through suffering, perfected in his obedience. What that means is, what's the prerequisite for all this? You need to be broken. When you come into uh, uh, community groups, when you come into the church, you come into anything, your work, you enter into your home. If you walk in with pride, it's, it's, it, does, it rarely ends well, never ends well. When you walk in with that mentality, what you can receive from God, in any one of those circumstances and experiences, you will not receive, really. Very often, we enter in with an air of, it's the, we're intoxicated by our own pursuit of being an Eliab. And that ruins, it corrodes, our soul is so corroded by that. 
we need to be broken. Because if God saved the world through the brokenness of Christ, what about you? Brokenness is the prerequisite for salvation and redemption and healing. So don't just trust in your ability, your own talent, your gifts. Our instincts are like this. Something happens in our lives, we're shaken up by it, and our immediate instinct, our reflexive action is to do what? Bring your faculties and your capacities and your skills and your talents to get yourself out of that experience. That's instinctive. It's natural. It's reflexive in our lives. Wisdom. David did what? Jesus did what? He endured. On one hand, we don't look for it. Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. We don't, we don't, uh, we don't look for suffering. We don't, we don't prize and gloat and boast about our suffering. But when suffering happens, what do you rest in? Your abilities? A lot of us, we say, well, I am weak. So what do we do? The first thing we do is we rely on people. We call people. That's still relying on a skill, your connections, your people, your support system. And you think that's enough. And then they don't help you, and you get so devastated because they failed you. Friends, our community... If you rest on community without resting in Christ, that's like driving a Mack truck over a walk bridge. Do you understand that? It's bound to crash. It's bound to fall apart. You have to be skeptical of your abilities. You have to be skeptical of your own personal individual wisdom and rely on what Jesus has done, what Jesus continues to do. Look at the Word. That's why we pray. Then seek pe seeking people and community and all those things in concert with seeking Christ-like character because Christ's righteousness has been transferred to you and your sin, you bear it no more. And so you can see with clear eyes. You will grow. You will mature in wisdom. You will mature through the suffering. That's how you learn a lot of times. Not always through suffering, but a lot of times when you're through, through suffering, we mature in wisdom, in compassion, in love, in character. And amazingly, resoundingly, through the history of the church, through the history of the word, there's joy and there's delight. Let's pray, shall we?